Well, I remember the first time that I read this passage. It's a famous one, Moses encountering God in the burning bush. I was in, I was my freshman year of college. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up uh, around studying scripture. So it was the first time I'd actually encountered this and was reading it and discussing it in a group. And I remember the discussion leader said, so what does this say God is like? And I remember I literally did this. I had it and I was looking at it and he asked the question and I went, hmm. And then I proceeded, I was like, God is like, and then I proceeded for about a minute to give this very sagely diatribe, right? Monologue of everything I thought God was like. I remember he sat there and he kind of nodded his head and very kindly he said, that's great. Uh, where, where did you get that from from this, from the text, which I had just, you know, kind of put down in my lap and closed. And, and, I, and he did something that was very kind, which was to point out that often we have assumptions about God. We have ideas, we, we have maybe a wish of what we, we wish God would be like, just assertions we make about God and what he is like. The problem is that we can actually become captive to those wishes and those assumptions and never really find and discover or encounter the real God of the universe, like Moses is going to do in this passage. See, shortly after, I read a book called Knowledge of the Holy by a pastor named A.W. Tozer, highly recommended if you've never read it, and he says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The things that we think about God, is God just an angry being? Is God glorious? Is God good? Is God unloving? Is God kind of apathetic and doesn't care at all about our lives? All of these, these things we think about God, these assumptions we have about Him, they become the most important thing about us because those are the things that actually deep down will drive our life. And so what we need more than anything else in this series in Exodus, we're looking at this big theme of finding liberation from captivity. In order to find true freedom, in order to find true life, joy and peace, in order to find those things, we have to find them in encountering God as He is. And that's exactly what happens in this passage with Moses. He encounters God as He is. And Moses, when he does so, encounters three liberating truths, three liberating realities about God, ones that we need desperately in our lives. They're this, and this is what we're going to go over today, that He is holy, that He is compassionate, and that He is faithful. Holy, compassionate, and faithful. Let's pray and then dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank You that you have revealed yourself as you are. You've made known to us true things about you so that we would think rightly about you. And after thinking rightly about you, we would live in accordance with those true things. 
And so, Lord, help these, though, not just to be mental things or just things we assent to in our minds, and we don't just play mind games or, or intellectual games, but, Lord, that you would sink these things down into our bones, into our souls. And that, Lord, they would captivate us. They would free us. So that the most important thing about us is that we would, uh, would be the things that we think rightly about you. And so, Spirit, wherever this needs to be applied in our lives, whatever, wherever our eyes need to be open, wherever new truths need to sink into our souls, Spirit, would you do that this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he is holy. So here's the thing about Moses. Up until this, by this point, Moses has been kind of wandering through life. He's in the wilderness. He's just kind of going about his life. So that's what we, where we start in verse 1. Again, this is Exodus 3. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, works for his father-in-law, that always goes well, uh, but then Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. Horeb is uh, one name that they gave to the mountain that we will see later, is also called Mount Sinai. So it's called both Horeb and Sinai, the mountain of God. So Moses is just going about his life. But Moses had lived until this point a very a hard life, right? Moses had been nearly killed as a baby. He had murdered someone. He was living his life as a fugitive. He was just kind of at this point eking out a, a very blue-collar job. It's filled with hard labor. And if that wasn't enough, Moses knew that his people, the Israelites, were enslaved to a very hard-hearted and very hard-headed Pharaoh. Moses was in a proverbial wilderness. He had a hard life. And, and most likely, we can imagine, because his life is just kind of like the plain details, going through the same hard details again and again, the same mundane details day after day, the same kind of chaos swirling around him, the same kind of difficulties. We can imagine that Moses kind of just got into a groove and thought that this was all life was, and to just keep his head down and to make the most of it, to kind of survive day to day. I, th I think some of those details, when we think about Moses, it's, it's very parallel to our lives, right? Our, our lives are, we have hard lives. Our lives are filled with hard labor. They're filled with hard circumstances. They're filled with chaos at times. They're filled with brokenness around us. Many of us have had very hard spiritual experiences. And when we look around us, all we see are those hard circumstances, challenges, brokenness. And, and here's the thing. What happens is we can begin to view God like that's a lens through which we view God. And, and we, we begin to think that perhaps God doesn't, doesn't care about the hard circumstances of life, that, that perhaps God is kind of out to lunch, that God is apathetic, or if anything, maybe I'm in this state and things are like this because God is just a very angry, very vengeful being, if he's even there at all. I know I've been through seasons of life like that and begun to go down that track, begun to kind of live in accordance with or just believing those things, just kind of going through life with that. And, and here's the thing, that's exactly when, it's exactly in those circumstances, exactly probably with that mindset that, that God encounters Abraham. 
that God reveals himself to Abraham with all the assumptions that Abraham, or Abraham, Moses, wrong guy, uh, that Moses has about him. It continues in verse 2. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So, so what's going on here, right? There's a bush, and it's on fire, but it's not consumed. So the bush is, is, is on fire. Moses is probably standing looking at it for a minute, and he realizes this thing isn't being consumed. It's not falling apart. It's still going. So what's happening there? Well, what happens here is God is revealing to Moses in this burning bush is his hot, passionate, blazing glory. His holiness, his, his very being is being put on display here. Yet at the same time, the reason why this, this physical bush, this, this object in creation is not consumed is because it's showing that God is entering creation with this very holiness, with this very, this very passion. And it's not consuming it. It's demonstrating God's desire for creation, that, that everything not of him would be, would be purified, would be burned away. That the glory that he created in creation would be liberated, that be freed, renewed. And see, this, this would include all of creation. It's not, see, the bush here is just kind of your basic, basic item in creation. But this is capturing God's desire for the world, that he would enter the world with his very being and he would renew it. And so we have a bush here, but this would extend to all the institutions of society, to, to the arts, to families, to you and me, to our lives. It's this picture of God redeeming what is good and purifying it. You can imagine that this would be, if this, this bush were sexuality, that it would be sexuality is not done away with, but that would be purified, that the exploitation and the brokenness and the, and the perversion of it would be refined and renewed and done away with. We can imagine that this would be like, like finances or money and that all greed would be removed. This would be like our bodies and all illness all pain would be removed. This would be us and that we would be renewed, that everything in us that is corrupted, that is broken, that is, that is fallen would be renewed. Now, here's the thing, though. Why? Why is, why is there this passion that God is demonstrating here in creation? Why would it be that God would enter into creation and he would say, I want to renew this. I want to renew you. Why? Well, what he does next is reveals that there's something happening here in creation, and it's sourced in, or it comes from, God's very being. So continue then in verse 3. It says, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him of the bush. Moses, Moses, maybe I should, Moses, right? I need to do like the voice, like Moses, right? No, Moses, <laughs> Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So Moses sees the burning bush, and God calls out to him by name. Begins, Moses encounters God, his very holiness, and and he encounters God in his holy being. Now, one of the interesting things that I, I would ask myself when I would read this at first, like, why, why so serious, right? Like, like, why does God, when he comes, he comes with fire. And God, God comes with this, not only this fire, but this fire that evokes fear in Moses. He, he hides his eyes. He hides his face. He, he realizes there's something in him that he shouldn't be in God's presence. And he's filled with fear. And I've wondered before, why, why isn't God, you know, I don't know. Sometimes when I read, I'm like, why isn't God like chummier, right? Like, why isn't he more just kind of walks up like, kind of like comes in from the side like, hey, hey, Moses, right? Just didn't want to alarm you, but I'm, I'm God. I'm the God of the universe. And Moses is like, oh, I've always wanted to meet you. And he's like, I've always wanted to meet you too, right? Like, I think we sometimes think like, why this like seriousness? Why? Because what God is doing is he's manifesting his presence with his very, the passion of who he is in his being for truth, for goodness, for beauty, for all that is glorious, that all that is of him. And here's the thing, he's jealous for that reality to be our reality. And he's coming into his creation where that is not the truth of what is he sees what is broken. He sees what is undone. He sees what needs to be renewed. He's not okay with the way things are because the things in this world are not the way that they're supposed to be. He's passionate to set it free. See, if you've been coming for a while, you've heard me give this little like 30-second like spiel, but we need to see this in our day that God from before time began is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is what Scripture reveals about God. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and from eternity past, God is in this, this perfect triune community, this, this presence of himself. And there is this, as John 4 says, 1 John 4 says, God is love. It doesn't mean that love is God, whatever we want to say is love, and we just claim that's God. No, no, God is love. He defines what love is, and in its main its core definition is that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit from eternity past, loving himself, delighting in himself with this passion. And God from eternity past, that's the core of his being and, and that, that internal purity and love for what is good and that beauty, that is called holiness. And God, what he did was then he went public with that holiness, what we call glory, like from the core of the sun and rays going outward. And God created this world. He just overflowed with an abundance of expressing that joy, expressing that delight in himself, that passion he wanted to, to then make creatures who would know that. So he made a world, a theater of glory, where everything would, would mirror his character, his goodness, his beauty, his truth. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. We then are created humanity, placed in that theater of glory, 
with the intention that being made in the image of God, to relate to God, to know Him, to have the capacity to join in that delight, to join in that love, to know it, to be welcomed into that fellowship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit with one another and live in that state forever, to take creation and, and cultivate it, to steward it according to that glory, according to that goodness. See, that, that, that's the picture of what God created, and that was lost. And that's why here we have this, this presence, this glory, this fire, where God's saying, I want you to have that. I want you to know it. I don't want you to miss it. And so he comes into this, this item, this object in creation, and it's a flame. It's a fire. It's almost transfigured. This is what creation is supposed, the state it's supposed to be in, alive with the very presence of God, who's beyond what we could imagine. And so he doesn't come just kind of flippantly. He doesn't come just kind of passively, but he comes passionately, seeking to make known his glory, seeking to refine, seeking to renew, to return creation to what it was intended for. What God is doing is he's saying where your life is filled with hard ground, where you recognize like Moses the hard heart that you have within you. When you see hard circumstances all around you, when all these things that lead to the captivity of our souls that we live with day in and day out, what God is saying is, I want to turn that hard ground into holy ground. I want to come into your life. I want to renew you. I want to set you free. Do you know me? See, God doesn't play games with what's not of him. God, God doesn't, you know, he doesn't call, this is why in scripture, he doesn't call sin, like we tend to say like, oh, kind of treat it like it's cute, kind of gets a little fuzzy pet we can kind of play with, right? God doesn't do that. Why? Be because he knows that it breeds death, that it breeds pain, that it breeds alienation, strife, separation from him. And God doesn't want to taint his presence with that, but he wants to renew us so we might know the fullness of it. And so, yes, seriously, he comes in seriousness to remove it. But God is not out to lunch. God is not apathetic. He is not absent. He is at work. So he is next compassionate. So you can picture Moses, right? He's trembling. He's, he's speechless. He's probably wondering what will happen to him. Because they know, he would know that this, this glorious God, he should be consumed. But what's interesting is God says, Moses, I'm not here to consume you, but commission you. I'm not here to consume you, but commission you. We'll come back to why he's not consumed. And God commissions Moses as an agent of his compassion. Let's continue. Verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, God said to Moses, but I will be with you, and this sign shall be the sign for you, 
that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, that last line is very interesting. Here's why. He says, I, you will serve me on this mountain. Why do I find that interesting? Because right before that, what he said, the whole, the whole passage, the whole paragraph, is God saying, I'm going to free you from slavery, from service to Pharaoh. To free you to what? Moses like, to free us to what? To freedom? To serve me on this mountain. And so it would be easy to read this and go, wait a minute, you just said you're going to free us from service to serve? Is this just like a slavery to another kind of slavery? Is this just service to another kind of service? How in the world is this compassion? Is this just slavery to slavery? Uh, Yes and no. (laughs) What is God saying here? This is very important. Uh, So yes, this is a form of being a servant. God is saying you will serve me. See, the thing, uh, what we're, we've said before and we'll say again and again in this series, what Exodus presents, what the whole of Scripture presents, is it's not a question of if you will serve something with your life. It's a question of who or what. You, I, we will, will build our lives on someone's wisdom, someone's truth, someone's uh, advice, someone's wisdom. Uh, we will follow someone's will. We will follow ideologies. It's not a question of if. The question is, will those things be for our good? Will the one we follow, will he be or he or she be for our good? And what God is saying here is he's, he's presenting this to Moses, saying, I want you to know true freedom that comes in serving me. Uh, but no, it is not. So yes, it is a form of service. But no, it is, is not like service to Pharaoh. Notice the, the terminology that was used to describe it. It says they're taskmasters, they're, you're suffering, there's oppression language. See, these terms that describe the slavery in Egypt are, are, were not for their good. But why are they not for their good? Is it just because they were unfair? Is it just because it didn't seem right? What, why, what would define why that was taskmaster's oppression? Why, why was it defined that way? It was defined that way by God because he's saying, this is in a second, I'll unpack this. What he's saying is because that service is not according to my holy character. Uh, what do I mean by that? There's a reason why God says, and you will serve me on this holy mountain. Later in Exodus, they're going to return to this very spot where, where Moses is encountering God in the burning bush. This Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. And, and on Mount Sinai, God will give him his law. And, and when God gives him his law, the reason why he says, you will serve me on this mountain at this place where I will give you my law, what he's saying is there, I will disclose to you, not just a list. You know, we think of the Ten Commandments like a list of rules, right? Like all of a sudden they were a nation and it's like, ah, they're a mess. We better give them some rules, right? Like when you have a class of kindergartners and you have to have like, oh man, this thing's a mess. So let's go over the rules every day, guys, right? So we can just kind of organize the chaos. In other words, we tend to think the Ten Commandments are just kind of some arbitrary moral laws that God created at some point. It's the wrong way to think about them. The Ten Commandments were given as a, essentially a way of explicitly stating the moral law that is in alignment with God's character and, and here's the key, hardwired into creation. 
If God has created a world that is full of glory and for his glory, that means that the relational fab- or sorry, the moral fabric of the universe that he created is moral fabric that's in alignment with who he is, his moral character, his glory, his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, his justice. And and it can't be avoided if we are creatures in his creation, because that means now, that's why in the Ten Commandments says don't murder. That doesn't, that's not just an arbitrary thing for some society or culture who created that. No, what it's saying is if you are a creature in God's world, a human being meant for relationship with him, and you murder someone, you will psychologically break down. You won't be able to avoid the guilt. If you cheat, it will psychologically break you down. If, if you dishonor your parents, then you will have intergenerational strife. And on and on and on, we could go through every single one of the, the moral laws that's there. What he's saying is there is a way of life that is in alignment with who I am and in alignment with my character. And he's saying, I want you to serve me, to walk with me in alignment with that reality that I will make explicit on that mountain. In other words, why this is compassionate is that God invites us to a life that walks in alignment with who he is, and that is our ultimate source of freedom. That it will be in serving God, that it will be in following him, that it will be in following his truth, his wisdom, his leading in our lives. If we do that, we will live in alignment with the grain of reality, and that's why Scripture calls it wisdom, and Scripture calls it blessing. Or if we try to live out of alignment with that reality, then it will lead to death and despair, to cursing. It is compassionate for God to reveal to us what it looks like to live in alignment with him. He invites us into that life. And he sends Moses to let him know. It'd it'd be hatred for God not to disclose that, or for God just to be like, you do you, do whatever you want. It'd be be hatred because it wouldn't go well for us. It'd be like my kids, they're they're always like, every day my kids are like, can we have more ice cream? Can we have more sugar? Can we have more this? Can we have more? And if I was just like, yep, just raid the pantry, eat all the potato chips and all the sugar that you want, right? Like, they'd be happy for a little bit, but then after a little bit, they'd be like, what? why did you let me do this, dad, right? Because they'd be like lying around, miserable, right? The long-term health effects of that. Like that's just one simple area of life where it's like, I I tell you this because I love you. I limit it because I love you. I make you go to bed by a certain time so you get sleep because I love you. It's it's parallel. It'd be hatred for me as a father not to train my children and teach them these things that are basic realities of life. God has been compassionate in, in freeing us to follow him. Now, the last then, the, the last question, what God reveals in his character is, uh, where do we begin with this? And what I mean by that is, how, how, do we, how do we even approach this God? How do we even have life with him? So Moses is continuing to process all this info. So he's like, you know, okay, you're holy. You want me to, you're going to set these people free. You want to send me, but, but who are you again? <laughs> who, who are you? Now, before reading uh, God's response, which, by the way, this is verse 13, because Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So again, he's like, who, who are you? What's your name? 
Now, when Moses does this, it's not just because he wants to know his name, but it's also because names in the ancient world would signify things about the person. Moses, his name Moses comes from, we saw in chapter 2, from him being drawn up out of the water. It's something significant about him, right? Israel's name comes from wrestling with God. It says something about them. In other words, when he's asking for his name, he's saying, who are you? What is it about you? What defines you? What's the, it's almost like your name is the branding of the entirety of your being. So how does God reveal himself? How does he respond? Uh, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Other ways of translating this, I am that I am. I will be that I will be. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So what is God saying here? He reveals himself actually with three, his name in three forms. There's a long form. I am that I am. There's a medium form, I am. And there's a shorter one. When, when you see in the Hebrew, when it, it's all caps, Lord, that's translating. That means in the Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Now, all of these are in some relation to the Hebrew word for Yahweh. They're, they're from the, the Hebrew word or the, the to be verb, eh, yeah. You can say Yahweh. Yeah, we don't exactly know how Yahweh was said originally in ancient Hebrew because they didn't pronounce it for about three or four hundred years. So then when they start pronouncing it again, everyone's like, uh, we actually don't know how to say this. But it's from that to be verb in the Hebrew. Now, why is that significant? That God would use essentially the, the to be verb to name himself. Is, am, are. Why? One, the to be verb in any language is the way to vocalize or communicate the basic building block of reality. Every language has it. The basic building block of reality. Now, the second thing, though, is the to-be verb is always used in reference to something else, right? I am tall. I am short. I am fast. I am slow. I, I am, I'm, I'm attractive. I'm less than attractive, right? Like, it, we use this to reference something to define ourselves, but here, God uses a to-be verb. He doesn't have a referent. The referent, or if anything, the referent is himself. So what is God saying here? What he's saying is, Moses, I am the building block of reality, and nothing outside me defines me or limits me. Stephen Sharnock, in his book, The Attributes of God, said, Our time is but a small drop, as a sand to all the atoms and small particles of which the world is made, but God is an unbounded sea of being. I am that I am. An infinite life. I have not that now which I had not formerly. I shall not afterwards have that which I have not now. I am that in every moment which I was and will be in all moments of time. Nothing can be added to me. Nothing can be detracted from me. There is nothing superior to him which can be detracted from him. Nothing desirable that can be added to him. God said all that in a little tweet, I am that I am. 
And what God is saying here is he is faithful to himself. to his holiness, to his glory, and it never changes. And here's the thing, the good news is that then he goes on to say, and I will throw all the weight of my faithfulness, all the weight of my being into a promise to you. All of this faithfulness, all of this holiness and glory, all of this confidence, it says then in verse, going on in verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pizzerites, Perizzites, (laughs) the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey terminology that captures blessing. What is God referring to in this promise? He reveals himself, I am that I am, now go tell the people a promise I made. See, God had made a promise earlier. The one he references here, he made it to Abraham. You can go and read it in uh, Genesis 15. I'd highly recommend you read that chapter. He, he makes a, a pre, not only a promise to Abraham, but he, while he makes a promise to Abraham, he also makes a prophecy. He prophesies that they will be in Egypt for hundreds of years. He says you're going to be in slavery. He says you're going to be there. And I make you a promise that by faith, in the context of what's going on there, by faith, if you respond to me and trust me, I will free you. And that promise he extends then to all people throughout all times, wherever they find themselves in captivity, spiritually alienated from God, driven by the world, the flesh, and the devil, the pharaohs of this world, both internally and externally, he makes a promise that I will be faithful, that he says he will be faithful to, to save them. Now, the key is in how God in Genesis 15 will make that promise, how, how he'll, um, he'll ratify it. In other words, you know that moment when you make a promise and you go, you promise? You're like, I promise. And you're like, do you pinky promise? And you're like, now I, like, right? That's like signing on the dot line. Now it's a woof. Well, God, what he's going to do is essentially that moment of the co- cosmic pinky promise. The unbreakable bond, right? This is what he does in Genesis 15 when he says, I promise you. It's going to be very important here to understand how We can have a relationship with God. How, like Moses, we can be in his presence. How we will not be consumed. How this passion for life, this this invitation can be for us and not merely a threat to us, an invitation. God has Abraham take an animal and divide it in half. And they, they lay the carcass, they cut it in half and lay the carcasses. In the ancient Near East, when you would make a covenant with someone, you wouldn't just pinky promise, but you would cut an animal in half. And then what you would do is you would, both parties would walk side by side through the severed sacrifice. And the principle of it was that if one of us breaks this covenant, breaks this promise to the other party, then the offending party, so shall this be done to them. 
right? Imagine if they did that when you like signed off on your house mortgage, right? <laughs> Knowing that what God does next is very key. What God does is he has Abraham, he has a deep sleep fall over Abraham. Abraham falls asleep, and while Abraham's asleep, God, as a what? A pillar of fire, passes through alone. In other words, what he's saying is, Abraham, I know you, and to all who I make this promise, I know you will never be able to be faithful as I can be faithful to this, but I will be faithful where you are unfaithful. Where you, where you fail to follow me, where you fail to trust me, where your hard heart gets the best of you, where you find yourself captive again and again, I will be the one who will pass through this because you won't be able ultimately to be faithful to this promise. And so I will pass through. And here's the thing. This is why Abraham or Moses is able to be in God's presence. Why do I say that? Because as he approaches God as fire, It was back in verse 2. It says, there is an angel of the Lord in the bush. I don't have time to demonstrate it, but it's almost universally accepted that this is most likely a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. In other words, what's happening here is God himself the second person of the Trinity, the one who will be the one who will uphold the faithfulness of God in his covenant. He knew then he would be faithful because I am as I am. I will be as I will be. And he was faithful then and he will be faithful one day where that very son of God who appeared in that bush would be the one who would go up on a cross and it were for our unfaithfulness, he would be faithful and he would undergo the wrath and the consuming fire of God to purify us. And he stood there in that bush, and that is why Moses was not consumed by that fire, because the one who would be faithful to uphold it was already there. He is holy. He is compassionate. He is faithful. And that is why he and he alone can liberate us from captivity. Do you know the one who was consumed on your behalf in order for you not to fall on the jealous, wrathful side of God's fire, but on the side of his embrace and his passionate love for what is righteous and true and beautiful. He says, come to me. He welcomes us. And here's the thing in closing as well. I know in our lives where our lives are filled with all the, the, the hard soil and the hard realities and our own hard hearts, the, the question is, how do we see that hard ground? Notice that all this whole passage hinges back in verse 4 when Moses does one simple thing. It says, when he turned. When he turned and he focused on the burning bush, that is the moment when then God speaks. I always ask myself, what if he hadn't? The, I think that in our day, often throughout our days, God shows up and he is present. In other words, there's a burning bush in our midst. There are a lot of things in our day to distract us, to get us to turn aside to, lots of blazing glorious things that distract us, or just frankly lots of dumpster fires to distract us, right? And we don't turn aside. And so in closing, my question is, in the midst of times of tumult, 
chaos? Do you have patterns in your life or, or just a disposition throughout your day to turn aside to see the burning bush, to see God's presence where he's at work, where he's redeeming? whether it's being in God's word in order to know of this redemption, to keep it fresh in your mind, whether it's in prayer and turning him, whether it's just in contemplation. Do you make that time? Turn aside. Throughout your days, turn aside and see. Fill your mind, fill your heart with these truths that he is, he is holy, he is, he is compassionate, he is, he is faithful. And when you do, let them become the most important thing about you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are holy. You are true. You're glorious. That you are faithful to your, to your promises. And Lord, that you make your promises them. You extend them to us. And, and so, Lord, help us not to miss this beautiful truth that you are always faithful to your, yourself. You are always you are passionate for your own glory. And how, Lord, then you extend that to us and invite us into that. Lord, we would not want you to have your eye on anything else, to be about anything else. And so, Lord, help our hearts to encounter you, to see you as you are and be transformed so we might find true, gritty, real freedom to live for your glory, to live in your holy presence. Go before us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.